our text for this uh, New Testament reading this morning, it's a weird one. Just going to call it out, let you all know. It starts kind of familiar. You might have heard part of it. And then it takes a weird turn. And you may notice yourself feeling a pull to really only want to dwell on the first part of it or start to feel a little uncomfortable about the second half, maybe feeling a little guilt, possibly some shame, or even some concern that you might be being manipulated. I am aware that starting this way, starting this sermon this way might be a bit disconcerting, and you would be right to ask, well, Matt, why did you choose a text like this for your sermon? And I'll admit it started out as a joke with Katie and I the last time uh, we were here visiting. She informed me that I was going to be preaching sandwiched between this, I believe, Sunday, one of the most beautiful things this congregation does, and Commitment Sunday. So why not preach on a text that could be used to coerce believers into giving more money to the church? She didn't find the joke funny that night. Hopefully, she will find it funny later. But the reality is is that this started as a joke. It quickly blossomed into something much richer. Because I think the real answer of why this text is being used today is that if we can get past its weirdness, if we can get past a superficial or a shallow reading, there are insights for us insights that are beneficial and valuable for the tail end of stewardship season. And so, now I invite you to open your hearts and your minds to this peculiar text so that we may hear a word from God. I will be reading Acts 4, 32 through uh, chapter 5, verse 11. That can be found on page 114 of the New Testament of your pew Bible. Hear now a word from God. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There were no needy persons among them, Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, that is, the one who encourages, was a Levite from Cyprus. He owned a field, sold it, brought the money and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. However, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. He brought the rest, placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked, Ananias? How is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? 
After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to the other people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife entered, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. Peter asked her, tell me, did you and your husband receive this price for the field? She responded, yes, that's the amount. He replied, how could you scheme with each other to challenge the Lord's spirit? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out too. At that very moment, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men entered they found, and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her with her husband. Trepidation and dread seized the whole church and all who heard what had happened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Human beings are by nature storytellers. It is how we make sense and meaning of our world, how we understand who we are individually and collectively, and how we share our values, our hopes, our dreams, and our convictions with one another. Simply put, if you want to know someone, know them more than just their name or some facts and details about their life, you need to hear and know their story. The same is true for communities, particularly communities of faith. To know a place like this is to know the stories. To know of the stories of the three sisters, of the efforts to build a welcoming center, of how this congregation survived a pandemic of how this congregation chooses to live out what it believes and holds dear by how it uses its money, uses its time. Many of these stories are informed by experience, but they are also informed by our scripture. We as a Christian community use the biblical text to help us understand who we are in light of God. And we have been doing that as a community of faith for a long time. We have been telling stories, we have been puzzling over them, we have been wrestling with them in an effort to make sense of them in light of what is occurring now. Sometimes, many times, the telling of these stories is a life-giving process highlighting the love of God, the welcoming embrace of the Creator, the outpouring of grace and forgiveness, the opening of doors, the tearing down of walls so that human flourishing can occur, a flourishing that we have experienced and then go out and share. Sometimes these stories nudge us, push us, compel us to seek justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God in acts that are 
large and acts that are mundane and small. And yet, sometimes there are Bible stories that we tell that don't fit this pattern. They are violent. They're hurtful. There is an effort that seems to be at play that wants to divide us, to separate us from others. Sometimes those stories tell of a God who is wrathful, vengeful, or angry. And we don't like those stories. I don't like those stories. Earlier this fall, I listened to a friend and colleague uh, preach a sermon in which she drew on these insights and then highlighted an implication that has stuck with me. My friend Marcy noted as she was preaching on the story of Adam and Eve and the fall narrative that we often tell that story poorly. And we've been telling that story poorly for a long time. It's been told so early in our, in our history that it shows up in a New Testament epistle. In 1 Timothy, in which the writer foolishly prohibits women from teaching or having authority over, women, over men excuse me, because of Eve's transgression in the garden, while completely ignoring the fact that Adam participated as well. This poor retelling has had disastrous con consequences. I was reminded this morning that our lesson from Genesis has also been told poorly and continues to be told poorly because it is used to say, we don't need to worry about global warming. We don't need to worry about the earth. We have been given dominion over it, and we are to subdue it. And I don't think that's what that text is about. Our second reading from Acts, in all its discomforting narrative arc, can also be told very poorly and can lead us to some rather shallow suppositions about God's activity and how a thin economic principle as it relates to tithing to the church could be employed by somebody standing in this pulpit. Admittedly, there may be some benefit to telling this story this way at the end of stewardship season. It might compel some of you to give a little bit more just to avoid being struck dead by God. I do not, though, however, believe that that is a faithful reading of this text. I don't think it's faithful to Holy Scripture. I don't think it's right. Because if we take a literal reading like that, like all literal readings of Scripture, the text is leveled, it's flattened, it's harmonized, it's reduced to reflect a particular worldview or value system normally that of the prevailing or dominant worldview. The result is a reading that requires submission, conformity, a rejection of difference, or just do what I say. I mean, what Scripture says. Or that little reading becomes like a sturdy brick, 
a brick that can be stacked upon other bricks to make a solid wall or a tall tower that could serve to make a great name for ourselves or to be a safe place for us to hide or protect us from the evils of the world around us, those, you know, those people who don't look, think, or act as we do, or they don't think, do, or act as our Scripture tells us we're supposed to do. And yet, like the Tower of Babel, those walls will crumble when, not if, the storms of life rage and begin to erode the mortar around these bricks or begin to tear them apart themselves. And we may find ourselves desperately trying to cobble together our wall that once was sturdy, or we may just simply look up one day and see ourselves standing in the ruins of our once sturdy and rigid faith. And so to read and retell this story of Sapphira and Ananias this way leads us to a choice. A choice to embrace fear uh, uh, and being shamed and coerced into giving and giving and giving, or simply chuck it out and move on as though it doesn't exist. Both of these options are laden with problems and shortfalls. So how should we read this text from Holy Scripture? How should we retell this story? As I thought about that question, I sat back and and remembered how indebted I am to my work and my training as a hospital chaplain. Because on a daily basis, I was confronted with situations that were well beyond my ability to understand or to make sense of. This made, the, made my job as responding to families who were looking to me to make meaning of what was occurring downright impossible. I don't know why that happened. I can't tell you what is occurring with this situation. But what sustained me as I stood there with families and what sustains me now as I'm confronted with the realities of life, or Scripture texts like this are the faith claims that I hold dear, faith claims that I hold deep within my being, faith claims that inform what I do, faith claims like God is love. It is who God is by nature, and that there is nothing in life or death, height nor depth, power nor principality, nothing that will separate us from that love made known in the person of Jesus. And out of this love, God formed us. God made us, each and every one of us, in God's own image. And that means that not only do we bear the mark of the divine, but we are meant for relationship. We are meant to be together with other people, and that is why we are called in to be the church, the body of Christ here on earth. It is why when we join together and baptize a child at that font, and we make promises to guide and nurture in word and deed with love and prayer, and encouraging them to know and follow Jesus as faithful members of the church, we are bound closer to one another. And those bonds are 
renewed and strengthened when we come to the table and we partake of the elements. These are the faith claims that hold my faith. These are the faith claims that help me understand a text like this. These help me retell this story. Because if I do it that way, I'm able to not dwell or focus so heavily on the economics of buying and selling land, of how do we use resources. And then I begin, and then I'm able to see more fully that this text isn't so much about economics, but it is a different way of saying how can we be a part of a community. For the first half of the story speaks of those within the community who held everything in common. They shared what they had. They shared who they were. And there was no want among them. No want for companionship, for friendship, for laughter, for food. I can only imagine that when that inevitable fear crept in, that fear of what if? How do I prepare for the rainy days? That those fears were met with loving reminders of hope-filled care and support. There was a living out of the faithful, loving response to the hope of the resurrection that the, that the apostles preached. And so I do not think that Ananias and Sapphira were bad people. I believe they were scared. I believe they were human, even. And it was their fear that drove them to withhold the proceeds from the land that they had sold. Because the idea of being completely vulnerable, unprotected, feeling as though they had no resources to save if a rainy day came, or feeling scared that if they gave it all and something were to happen, that they would have to do that terrifying thing of asking for help was untenable for them. It was fear that stopped them from fully investing all of themselves within the community and trusting that their needs would be met if they did so. It is this interpretation of their act that I believe leads to a telling of the story in such a way that will resist the pull to fear-mongering and shaming in the church. Because by withholding the proceeds, by hiding that detail, Ananias and Sapphira ultimately found themselves unable to experience the community fully. They were on the edges of it. They were never able to experience its life-giving nature. In a way, they were dead in fear, and yet the community still tended them in death. So what then does this telling of this story have to say to us at the end of stewardship season? The implications may be different for each and every one of us, but I believe there are similar elements and shared themes that will be at the core of our answers. For I believe this text is a call to invest 
all of yourself in this community. Not just your financial resources that allow this congregation to be staffed well and are used in the various ministries and missions that are supported here, but to invest your time, your gifts, your very talents, that which makes you, you, here. It may mean getting to know people you have not met yet. It may mean getting to know people you do know just a little bit better. It may mean coming to a Morningside Sings program or a Coro Vacati concert. It may mean being a confirmation mentor, volunteering to chaperone a youth trip. They're not terrifying, I promise. They're super fun. It may mean helping teach a children's Sunday school class or an adult Sunday school class. It may mean going on a mission trip or a work day with one of the ministries this congregation supports. It may mean bringing a meal to someone in need. It may mean answering the phone when another congregant's kids are driving them nuts and they just need to be reminded they're not crazy. It may mean holding and loving people that you haven't met yet. But I'll caution you, though. If you tell this story this way, you are going to find yourself investing more of yourself, more of your time, more of your resources, and you will inevitably find yourself being drawn deeper and deeper into the life of this community of faith, into the lives of those around you. You will feel yourself being pulled deeper and deeper into that mystery of faith that we share. And the result will be that your world will begin to be blown open. You will begin noticing living out and from an abundance of grace-filled love that that will somehow seemingly draw others to you and to this place. And it will change you. But I will say it's worth it. Hallelujah and amen.